podcast in the world. From WWE to DNA Impact. By way of the NWA, it's time for Reffin' It Up. With legendary referee Brian Hepner and guest host, Mr. Reffin' Rant himself, Jimmy Corderas. An all-new episode starts in... This, this is Reffin' It Up. Welcome back to Reffing It Up. I am RJ. I am joined by the two greatest referees of all time. First and foremost, Mr. Jimmy Corderas. And last but certainly not least, Mr. Brian Hamner. Jimmy, how are you doing, man? Uh, I can't complain. I mean, obviously, uh, being up here in Canada during this cold weather and a little <laughs> bit of the white fluffy stuff flying around, I can complain. But hey, I've uh, I've dealt with it all my life and I could deal with it again. Same boat, man. I want you to keep, I want you guys to keep it up there. We got some down here on the other side of the lake, but uh, well, for all in all, it's, yeah, it's what it is. It's going to happen sooner or later. And, and it's also been an interesting week. Let's put it that way in pro wrestling. So what is everybody talking about? Hmm. <laughs> well, who knows at this point, I'm, I'm sure somebody will, uh, some, something happened. I'm sure. I don't know what happened, uh, but maybe we'll get into it. And by the way, y'all are the greatest weatherman ever. I love knowing, <laughs> love knowing your area and what's going on. Guess what? Y'all are bringing that cold shit down here, and there's snow all around me except here, which is great. But anyway, hey, I'm excited more than anyone knows about this episode with Hermie yeah. Sadler, by the way. So, RJ, please send us to our first count. All right, let's uh, set up their first count and see what uh, everybody's talking about. Gentlemen, man, I, I don't think we've had a busier week in the world of professional wrestling that we had this past week. Hell indeed has uh, frozen over. No, it's not the weather in Toronto and in the Rochester area for Jimmy and myself. It is CM Punk returning to the WWE at Survivor Series. Uh, guys, I watched this live and I knew my gut told me. Uh, don't turn it off at the end. And, you know, Ramon Innuendo has it now. If you read anything on the internet and you know, you take it with a grain of salt, but from what the, a lot of people have seen reliable sources that triple H took over within the last couple moments of survivor series at the, uh, desk and basically told them to put up the credits and then sure as hell. <laughs> And boom, CM Punk comes out to legitimately one of the biggest pops I've ever heard live. Not in person, obviously, like you guys, but over a TV. But Jimmy, man, th there's nothing else like that. I I, I can't remember anyways. Yeah, it, it, it was all in the timing of it. Because, you know, uh, being in Chicago, obviously, there were people that were expecting it to happen. And with the ending of the match and it looking like going to credits, it almost felt like the crowd felt like a little disappointed at that point. Mm -hmm. And then when that music hit, they just went, as Pat Patterson used to say, absolutely banana. And <laughs> it erupted. And like you, you said, uh, hell froze over. It's I, I didn't expect it, but let's put it this way. 
there's that old saying in the wrestling business, never say never. And it was ne never more true than on Saturday night at Survivor Series, which, by the way, was a good paper or PLE. Right. Well, I'll, I'll just say and I'm going to start by saying this. Um, I had said in a tweet that I had to make some apologies and appraisals as well. OK, and I'm going to say this. I knew CM Punk was coming back. I just didn't think this soon. I really didn't. I think it would take longer to mend the offenses. Um, but I will say this. This is good for business. It makes nothing but sense and dollars. And also a really good slap, like a bitch smack in the face of AEW. Um because they thought he was a cancer and couldn't be worked with. But what I'll say is this. Um, I don't think you're going to see the same shit you saw. I think that people have grown up and I think people have outgrown what's going on. And what I find most fascinating about this is that, you know, the backstage, all right, let me stop. All right. First of all, CM Punk, I apologize, all right? I still think what I said is what I say. But you're an attraction. For some reason, you're an attraction. You are a star. You, you sell tickets. You make people want to watch. I still don't take the fact back that I said that I still don't see him as a wrestler as far as being just a normal wrestler. Nothing over the top. He's not a Randy Orton. But he is a political guy who always involves himself into a crazy world, which is what we're seeing. And WWE believes in him. You will not see these backstage shenanigans with him and WWE anymore. You won't. It won't happen. And if it does happen, he's the biggest fucking dumbass I've ever seen in my life. He's got a second chance of life, which we all don't get. I'm I'm I, I'm one here to attest for it. You don't get a second chance in life. Um, but with those backstage altercations, the WWE will not put up with it. And I guess what? He's not going to either. This is a huge move and a slap in the face of AEW. Yeah, and you know, even just when he came came out too, is I immediately thought, man, he looks a lot better physically than he did in AEW, or when he did the first go around here in WWE, and it looks and it looks like he's ready to go, and he's saying the right things. Whether that you know, we'll see how it plays out, but. We get the reaction that we saw from the fans, but we see the reactions that we've seen from a lot of the boys, whether they be in front of the camera, behind the camera, whatever the case may be. Uh, I'll say this and we can move on um, or to something else too, if you guys want to bring it up, but the reaction from Seth Rollins, it's got to be brought up. It was, you know, everybody gets the video out there. You know, is this a work or shoot? Is it a whatever? rumor has it it's going to be the first feud that Punk's going to have in WWE is with Seth Rollins. 
you know, Jimmy, what you, you, we've seen a lot of this, you know, in this in the company, you know, the rivalries, this or that, you know, are they working? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? What do you think? I think the fact that they've got people questioning it in this day and age where everybody thinks they know everything. That's the beauty of this. People are thinking, wow, when Seth went off, after they went off the air, when he went on that tirade with the middle fingers and the F-bombs and all that sort of stuff, was it a work? Was he shooting? Because everybody knows that they have a history, those two. So mm-hmm. if both guys, I think both guys have grown up and matured, like Brian has said, and they know that they can make business. This is a business about making money. That's what this is about. And if they don't put their little differences that they may have aside and think, hey, look, we've got something here. We might have caught lightning in a bottle and create a buzz and get people interested again. That's what's happening, I think, in my opinion. I believe that it's more along the lines of, like you said, Brian, both uh, Punk is saying he's, you know, I guess over the last decade or so has grown up for lack of a better term, I don't, I don't want to say we're growing up, but he learned, let's put it that way. And one of the things he said interesting in his promo on Monday night, it was a short promo, to the point, said a lot of the right things. But one of the things that caught my uh, caught my ear and made me go, hmm, was when he said someone had told him, a very wise man told him, sometimes you have to leave somewhere to appreciate what you had there. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's happened here is he thought, okay, I'm going to leave this situation. I'm going to go over here where I'm going to have a little more freedom to do what I want to do and blah, blah, blah. And things are going to be fantastic. Didn't work out quite as he expected and learned from it and said, hey, you know what? I know how to maybe balance both my, uh, he's obviously an opinionated guy, balance myself with the company. And I think they could work well together. And if they both realize that there's some money to be made here because he has a connection with that audience. Well, here's my thing. So I am now retracting on a lot of things that I said. Okay. And, I, and, and I only, and I only say this because look, when you're wrong, you're wrong. Okay. Here's the thing. I take nothing back as what I think is him as an athlete, as far as what he is as a wrestler, very tremendous, whatever, but not to me, not as far as a wrestler in ring work, as far as like say a Randy Orton or anybody now today that's that's you know that's just much more talented than he is in the ring. But he's an attraction because of the stuff that's gone on throughout his career. It's the things that went wrong that makes him better. If <laughs> that makes sense. And what I mean by that is that I've gone back and I've thought about it and I've looked and I've thought about things listen the AEW has a politically driven mess they do they have a mess and it's it's dealing with a bunch of children it's why this is a is a problem this is why this became up it's you're dealing with a bunch of people look at your EVOs or whatever the fuck your names are or whatever the fuck they have as far as Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks, and all this stuff running and having name labels and all this bullshit. Who the fuck? Don't get me wrong. They're great. 
They don't know about running a wrestling company. And Tony Khan is like the puppet for these fucking guys to fucking fuck with him. Jack Perry has a problem with CM Punk. Are you kidding me right now? And this is why I'm starting to retract what I think. I think the guy means well. And I think the guy's going to go in here and he's going to mean business. The way he, like RJ, you said, he looked different. You know why he looked different? Because he took this approach way differently than he did when he took the approach with AEW. He looked at it as this. This is my chance. Here I go. I'm going to get fucking jacked. I'm going to look good. I'm going to be ready for TV. He didn't give a shit in AW, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is, he, when he walked out in that t-shirt, I'm not going to lie to you, when he walked in that white basic t-shirt, he just said, I'm a Chicago guy, a Chicagoian, or whatever you want to call him. And he said, I'm going to beat some fucking ass, and I'm bad, bitches. And it made a statement. He didn't have a merch shirt. He had a white t-shirt on and said, I'm about to be back here now, and I want you to know I'm back here now, and I'm going to kick some fucking ass. The political bullshit that goes backstage with AEW is unbelievable, and I'm starting to see that now. And I never went back and looked at that. Now, they have a show that's built called Collision that was built around this same guy. It was his show. How is AEW ever going to compensate for that? They're not. They have these huge signings that Tony Khan goes on and just says, oh, God, we got a huge signing. We're going to announce it here or there. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm getting choked up. Um, But Will Ospreay, don't get me wrong, huge talent. I am not knocking on him or anything. But there's your Will Ospreay and CM Punk. Really? There's your... Your 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 counter. There's no counter there. There's no counter there. This just shows to me. And AEW fans, I'm sorry, but numbers are numbers. And here's the thing: they're bringing a CM Punk. Okay, their Survivor Series attendance was seventeen thousand three hundred eighteen people. All right, they were forty four percent increase in viewership, twenty four percent in sponsorship revenue. Between SmackDown, Survivor Series, and Dynamite, here's what I'll say you too. SmackDown had 13,000 people, 17 plus for Survivor Series. And this is all in Chicago. And then Dynamite had 5,000. Good crowd. Don't get me wrong. Not knocking it. So 35,000 fans in three days in the city of Chicago happened. And what I'm trying to say is this. It didn't happen because everybody wants to watch wrestling. It happened because of the love and the passion and the star that CM Punk is in WWE. They're on fire. Don't tell me. Don't 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 try and government me that gas is high and now it's low because now you're only paying $3 a gallon. Fuck that shit. No, it's high as fuck. No. Here's the deal. WWE is on fire. On fire. I don't think I've ever seen it that big. And I pay attention to numbers. And I gave you my numbers because I pay attention to them. (laughs) Every show they go to right now is outselling what they did the last time they were there. I'm looking at AEW, and I'm just telling you right now, 
with blindfolders on, I'm sorry, they're not selling the same amount of tickets either at all. Nowhere close to the next market they go to the next time. The point of me bringing all this up is this. I don't know how you can compare AEW trying to be a competitor to a to, to, to WWE. It's ridiculous. It's not there. It's not there. They got Randy Orton coming back, CM Punk with a return, and they got Will Ospreay. Okay. All right. Well, y'all tell me. And you have Jade Cargill as well coming over too as well. So who knows what's going to happen with that. Uh, one thing I want to bring up and get your opinion on before, you know, we're so excited with this next interview. We want to, we're going to be ended up skipping over ref and review this week. So, cause we want to get Hermie in here real quick. So what I want to get from both of you guys, and then we'll send it up to our second count End game, Jimmy, I'll start with you. Where do you see this ending up in the next three months for CM Punk? What do you think the end game is going to be? I wish I could tell you, but there's so many opportunities here. There's so mm. many places it can go. You know what I mean? Like you, you look at the back at uh, Survivor Series, which is really good. You know, the, the big return of Randy Orton was the big news got overshadowed mm. by CM Punk. And then again, on Monday Night Raw, he comes out. He's the last thing you see on Monday Night Raw, cutting a promo and stuff like that. So it, you can have him versus Seth Rollins going after that title. You could have him versus Randy Orton, who's arguably, you know, on the Mount Rushmore of, of uh, wrestler, in-ring wrestlers and, and that sort of stuff. There's so many possibilities. But if I had to guess, the money right now, especially going after the, uh, I guess, after the PLE pay-per-view on, on Saturday night, you can tell a nice story here leading up to the Royal Rumble featuring Seth Rollins and CM Punk. Mm -hmm. Whether they do it that soon or do they play it out and wait it out till WrestleMania. But I could okay. see him and Seth Rollins in a big, big deal. So, Jimmy, let's touch on this. Uh, I have a massive feeling about what I feel. This Seth Rollins things, is this just him being smart or you think this is a work? Uh, I think um, I think it's more um, I'm leaning towards work because I think Seth Rollins is a smart man and he knows that there is, like I said, money to be made here if they do it right. And and there's been and, you know, Brian, there's been guys in, in history that do not like each other, but have been able to work together because they know that there is money to be made if they get in the ring. Put their differences aside. They don't have to go out and have drinks afterwards. But when we're in the ring, let's do business. And you know what? I, I find that fascinating. I love that. I really love that. I actually like it better when they don't like each other and they have to do business. I, I think it's awesome. And, it's, uh, sorry and, to cut you off. But part of the reason is because once they're in the ring together, even though they're working together, that realism, that feeling comes out. It, 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 you, you can't hide it. It's almost like... Uh, sorry to go back to the, the the promo on Monday night that Punk was uh, you, at the end of Raw, but you can almost sense it in him that he was glad to be back. It wasn't him working. It was coming out in him. You felt it in him. You saw so, it. Jim, so, Jimmy, I, I, I said a lot. 
I get it. I get it. I said a lot. But like, do you not halfway agree with everything I'm saying or any of what I'm saying? No, I do. It's just, it's, just, it's hard to, uh, again, it, it, they've got me wondering and, and thinking, um, you know, is it work? Is it shoot? You know, and, and that sort of thing. And, and w- what are you referring to with regards to what I'm disagreeing with? <laughs> in other words, this is the hugest slap in the face to AEW. No, it, it, it is a huge slap in the face. And it's, and you know what? Here's part of the thing. Perception to a lot of fans is reality. You look at what's happening. Cody Rhodes coming to WWE and becoming uh, arguably the top or at least one of the top baby faces there. He is loved by everybody. You see, you know, now CM Punk leaving there and, and from a situation that looked like, you know, uh, they couldn't play nice together, so to speak, with the EVPs and all that kind of stuff, and and how the how things are being run there. And now we're hearing about QT Marshall leaving, who wore many hats there, wears many hats there. He's a especially behind the scenes. So uh, there seems to be, even though they've signed some big names like Adam Copeland, aka Edge, and stuff like that. At the same time, there are people going the other way that you think wouldn't be. Especially yeah. a guy like CM Punk, you know what I mean? CM Punk would have been, like you said, he may not be the greatest in the ring like a Randy Orton kind of thing, but at the same time, he's got something that fans love, especially diehard fans, which is what AEW caters to, and even he left. And, and I also read that where he, he thought they were going to that New Japan style, whatever, and he wasn't happy with that. Not mm-hmm. only that, but, but it's like this. They are a farm system for the WWE, is what they are. It, it, it really is. It, it, it's a farm system for, for, for WWE. And guess what? WWE is inviting it. They love it. Like, let, let, let's, let's see who goes. Let's see who draws. Let's see who does whatever. Like, your MJF, if MJF signs, resigns with uh, AEW after 2020, what is it, uh, 24, mm-hmm. I would be completely shocked that he would stay and it would be a massive amount of money it would have to be because the guy's a draw look you have edge they're paying him or whatever you said rated r superstar let's do it that anyway yeah he's making plenty of money and he's having his freedom and he's having a good time and you know what and i'm happy for him Mm -hmm. i am Mm -hmm. Because there's an option. But what I'm saying is, for any AEW fan or any AEW wrestler or any... Is your goal as a wrestler coming out of NXT, the the, the training portion of... Or the, the, the... What is it called? The... Developmental? Yes. Out of their developmental. Is your goal to be on AEW? No. What is your goal? Main roster. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And Wrong what I'm saying, it, it, it's just, you know, I, I, I can't stand when people get so mad on my Twitter feed about trying to compare AEW to WWE. You're not there, bud. You sent, you had 5,000 tickets in Chicago. You ran the same city the same weekend they did. They just basically did 17,000 plus and 13,000 plus. You did five thousand 
And I'm not mad about that. That's great. That's a that's a good number for your main TV show, though. Mm-hmm. And it blocked off with horrible lighting. And and their TV numbers aren't where, where they would hope they would be. And don't get me wrong. They're not bad on Wednesday nights, but you look at their Friday nights and their Saturday night numbers, uh, they're nowhere near where they, uh, you know, should be. They would want them to be. Let's put it that way. And and again, maybe maybe the future is the internet, but right now the money is in television. Mm-hmm. TV is where the big money is made. Yep, it is, man. But anyway, all right. So why don't we why don't we do this, guys? Why don't we uh, send it up to our second count and welcome in Hermie Sadler? And uh, man, can't wait for this uh, this interview, guys. So we'll be right back after this in our second count. Let's talk about sex, guys. Shouldn't you always be at your best? 2023 is the year to maximize your performance in the bedroom. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in the line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and prepared and shipped directly to your door in a discreet package. Guys, remember the days when you were always ready to go? Don't be that guy that says, I don't need it. You don't know until you try. You could be missing out on the best sex of your life. With Blue Chew, men everywhere are excited to see the postman because when your package has arrived, your package has arrived and always leave them satisfied and wanting more. Try Blue Chew for free when you use the promo code REFIN at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com, promo code REFIN, R-E-F-I-N, to receive your first month free. Visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this show today. Blue Chew, chew it and do it. All right, Reffin' It Up Nation, I'm bringing in one of my favorite people of my life, one of the longtime friends of all of the Hefners. I want to welcome in Mr. Hermie Sadler. Hermie, what's going on, buddy? Brian, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing better now that I see your face. I haven't seen you in such a long time since we went to, uh, what was it, Outback down here? Outback, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We went to Richmond. I go every year. My youngest daughter, Naomi, plays softball at Randolph-Macon, so we were on the way home from the uh, fundraiser golf event a couple of years ago, the the, uh, the legendary Shep Boss was with me, oh. that, you know, that you know very well. I and uh, it was good to see you that night and uh, miss you guys. I, I talked to your dad once in a while, and uh, but 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 uh, certainly miss all you guys. Well, we're very, very, very happy to have you on, man. And uh, yes, you've uh, meant a lot to me, and we'll go over all that stuff too. But uh, uh, want to want to introduce to you uh, Jimmy Corderas. Long time should be Hall of Fame and referee, uh, and uh, my, my co host RJ. 
Yeah, uh, met RJ early tonight and glad to be on. And Jimmy, been a longtime follower and fan of yours as well Damn through the years. Sure. And Brian knows this. You know, I started going to wrestling shows, the old NWA live events right around here where I live in Emporia, Greensville, you know, in the in the late 70s, early 80s. So been a longtime fan of the business and and uh, have a lot of a lot of great friends still to this day uh, in and around the, the wrestling business. So uh, honor honor of mine to be on with you guys. Well, thank you. It's a, it's an honor to have you on. And and so basically, you grew up mid Atlantic, yeah. Championship wrestling, which uh, you know, it's funny that you said that because I, I live up here in Toronto, and that was uh, before you know the WWF at the time took over everything. The main source of talent for our tr shows here yeah. in Maple Leaf Gardens was Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling talent. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Crockett. Promotions. We used to go to Richmond to the WTVR studio. We used to go to Raleigh. Uh, mm -hmm. to the small TV studio uh, they had. And, you know, for the, you know, the Ric Flairs and the Paul Jones and the Johnny Weavers and the Ken mm -hmm. Pateras, all those uh, guys and girls. Um, I, I grew up watching as a kid and I'm not, I'm not sure I've even told Brian this story, but I got my first real introduction into what wrestling kind of was. I'm going to, I'm going to guess the year probably 1980, 81, um, and both of these guys I became friends with, um, one was Wahoo McDaniel, who, uh, bless his heart, you know, passed away some time ago. I used to go fishing a lot with Wahoo, uh, back in the, you know, in the, you know, as I got older in the mid nineties, early to mid nineties, he did a bunch of shows up around South Hill where I had a car dealership. Uh, and I've, I've been fishing many times with Wahoo, but, and also, you know, Ric Flair, who we all know, but. Rick Flair and Wahoo McDaniel main evented a Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling event right here in Emporia at the Greensville County High School gym about 1980. I might be wrong a year or two, but about that. And so uh, we went to the show. Of course, both of those guys bled all over the whole building. And but what what what's, what uh, really shook me up that night was about 45 minutes after the show. My dad, right here on the back lot of where my office currently is, we had a self-service gas island where you could, you know, uh, pump your own self-service gas island. And so about 45 minutes after the show, we we're riding around with my dad. He would always want to ride around and check all of our gas locations to make sure lights were on and pumps were working, all that. And we saw, guess who, getting gas after the show. Wahoo well, McDaniel and Daniel. Ric Flair together <laughs> after they wow. had been in the main event against mm -hmm. each other uh, over here at uh, at the gym. So I didn't quite understand that at the time, but, but you know, kind of ironic that uh, they were two of the guys that I looked up to in the wrestling business that early on and became friends with them later in life. You, you know what's crazy about that story, Hermie? First of all, K-Fay, brother. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, no, but uh, but the funniest part about that story, Jimmy, are you not shocked by the two people he just named that rode together? A uh, uh, little bit, especially at that time, because right. you know, it's, it's it's not like today's where it's, uh, I don't want to say that the business isn't as protected as it was back then, but back, back in the day, especially in the Mid-Atlantic Territory, you wanted, uh, you know, people had an idea, the suspension of disbelief and all that sort of thing, but at the same time, it was kind of like an unwritten rule where when guys were in a, a feud slash rivalry, you guys didn't ride together in public. You acted like, you know, yeah. 
you, you were know on what, television. You know what it was, Hermie? So you said that was Wahoo and Rick, right? Yep. Well, what it was, was they were in Emporia where there's nothing fucking there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Rick Flair found a spot. And Wahoo just said, man, I got to go with you. And they said, let's get fucked up. And that's yeah. what they did. That probably could have been it. <laughs> but, you know, then I bought the car dealership in South Hill in 1992. And at my grand opening, I did like a week-long grand opening event in the fall of 1992. And Wahoo and I ended up going fishing. And he worked a, a show up in Chase City at the fair in Chase City. And so uh, I was uh, you know, disappointed that he uh, his health declined the way it did and how it did because I always thought, I mean, Wahoo was, I mean, he came in with, with the big – you know, uh, with the gimmick, and, and he he played the part very very well, and and uh, always enjoyed watching him. And of course, Rick is uh, legendary in more ways than one, as we all know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, we do. I I have a curious question though, because yeah. it sounds like you, obviously when you were young and growing up, before uh, moving into the venture you moved into, it sounds like you were a huge fan pro wrestling was it ever one of those things like hey one of these days i'd love to get into the wrestling business before you got into the business you did never never had you know at that age i just loved the entertainment it was every saturday morning like clockwork watching it on television and you know it was entertaining you know i didn't quite understand or know i just i just loved you know the um the aggressive nature of it and i loved the physicality of it and i loved the characters you know, and then, of course, later in life, you know, it turned into a, a business venture uh, of mine, but it turned into a business venture of mine because of my relationships and my friendships uh, that I had made through the years. I went from, you know, being a huge fan and, and going to Richmond, going to Richmond Coliseum, going to the Dorton Arena in Raleigh, going to Hampton, Norfolk, and watching all these shows, and then when I started racing and kind of started making a name for myself, then, you know, when you start running in circles with people that are involved in, you know, in, in things like that, you start, you know, getting to know people and hanging out and going to dinner and doing all that. And that's ultimately what led me into, um, you know, my involvement in, in wrestling in a, on a business level. And, and so um, I have met some interesting people, a lot of them that y'all know, um, but, but, I have loved the business and loved the entertainment aspect of it. It's put a lot of on a lot of people's faces for a long time uh, across all economic, you know, uh, from one end of the spectrum to the other. And that's another thing I've always liked about it. You, you know, people of all ages, people of all backgrounds, colors, races, you, you name it. Everybody uh, loves and enjoys professional wrestling at some point. And sorry, I don't mean to jump in on the other guys here. You brought up something very interesting, the broad range and the broad spectrum of fans, because sometimes there's that uh, generalization, wrestling fans are this and that. Uh, do you find the same thing in, in the NASCAR world as well, that the range of uh, fans also are broad horizon, broad scape, for lack of a better term? Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I know, like, I know wrestling fans that, are worth not worth a hundred bucks. I also know wrestling fans that are worth millions of dollars. And I same way with NASCAR. I know NASCAR fans that scratch and claw every penny they can get together to try to come to a race for a weekend. And of course, 
I also know racing fans and people that are involved in the sport that are, you know, multimillionaires. So, you know, there's a kid in all of us at some point. And, you know, for me and my brother, Elliot, growing up, I mean, we just loved it. We loved it. And it was, uh, it was entertaining. It was fun. And it was a family event for us, you know, back, back in our ages, you know, me, eight, nine, 10 years old, my brother, four, five, six years old. That was a cool thing. And one of the few things we always got to do as a family, especially with my dad was we went to, we went to NASCAR races and we went to wrestling events and I have a lot of great memories from both. Now, Herbie, um, since this is more or less a wrestling show, but you know, it's all cool, but, uh, let's get back to the, to the start of things real quick that I'm very curious about that actually me and you've never talked about me and you've talked about a whole lot. Oh Lord. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, there's one that I have not. So, where are the roots for you other than your dad? Like, where did this NASCAR thing start for you? Like, in other words, were you in go-karts when you were younger? Were you in um, motocross? I mean, where? how did all this come to form to where you were like, okay, this fucking race car shit is something I'm fucking going to do. Like, where where'd that come from? Yeah, well, there's a misconception with some people that think, because a lot of, like, Brian, you're a perfect example. A lot of times people get into things because of their dad or because of a family member, my dad never drove a race car. My dad used to own a race car that we used to race around on dirt tracks around Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. This was when I was really young kid, you know, three, four, five years old. We used to race over at Saluda, close uh, over to your area, oh, yeah. you know, Wilson Fairgrounds. But my dad never drove, but he did own race cars. He loved racing, owned race cars. The, the itch for me and the first opportunity I got was because there was a guy that worked for my dad and still works for me to this day named Danny Wyatt that when I was growing up um, and while my dad was owning race cars and running a business and doing all that, this guy named Danny Wyatt raced in uh, race go-karts around the mid-Atlantic region. And so my dad running a business, having a family, always on trips and, you know, with, um, you know, always gone. I got stuck with Danny a lot uh, to stay with him while my parents were gone. Well, I'd go to the go-kart track with Danny every weekend when I was five, six, seven, eight years old. Next year, as I know, you know, I had built me a go-kart or Danny and I had built a go-kart and I was racing little dirt tracks around Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, even up, you know, in Northern, you know, Delaware and Pennsylvania, places like that. Make a long story short, I started racing full-time go-karts. I won the world karting championship in 1988 and that started with just me and danny wyatt going to a local saturday night short track and putting our go-karts in the back of a pickup truck and that's how how i started so i won the world karting event in 1988 then i started racing late model stock cars at south boston speedway here in virginia orange county speedway martinsville north wilkesboro places like that and i raced late models like a saturday night Saturday night uh, short track deal. And I did that until, um, Brian, my big break came, um, in the fall of 1992. Y'all may not understand this if you're not racing fans, but at South Boston Speedway one night, we had what's called twin 100s, which means, you know, we would qualify, run a hundred laps. Then when that race was over, they would invert the top eight finishers in the first race, run a hundred more laps. And I was lucky enough on that one night in 1992 
to win both ends of the twin 100s, which was pretty rare because of the track position. So I won the first race, so I started eighth in the second race. But when the second race was over, when I was doing my victory lane, a guy named Don Beverly, actually from Chester, Virginia, on Don's trucking, was at the race. He came across the racetrack, came to me in victory lane and said, hey, really like what we see, like what you did tonight. We'd like to talk to you about maybe driving for us in the Bush Grand National Series starting in 1993. Long story short, I went to work for Don Beverly in 1993, won Rookie of the Year, drove for him a couple of years, and then I was off and running with my NASCAR career. And then in the early 2000s, I started along about the same time I was doing some of the, the house shows for TNA. Uh, I started about a 17-year career with Fox Sports 2 doing doing television as well. So uh, just one thing leads to another, right place, right time, all those kind of things. But I never dreamed when I was going to race go-karts on a Saturday night as an eight-year-old that I would ultimately make a career out of driving in NASCAR and doing television. And by the way, doing some wrestling promoting on the side. You know, it's, 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 it's interesting you went to where you went to because I have actually highlighted on my – we have what we call a run sheet here, Hermie. I yeah. know you know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not important enough to have a syllabus, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, by the way, um, um, I, I know Don Beverly very well, who you mentioned, Dove, and I know his daughter very well, Carrie. Um, she actually prepares meals for me sometimes, if you didn't know that. She's got a catering business, and sometimes my kids say she can outcook me, which absolutely fucking sucks. Um, but no, in 1993 though, you were a driver for, for him and, and, and it was an Oldsmobile according yeah. to my, okay. And, um, you were actually named that year, the, uh, Bush grand national series rookie of the year, dude, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that, that really is. That, that and, you know what? and, and I, I didn't know it at the time, but those were the best days of my life. As far as racing is concerned, I was young. Um, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of expectations. I didn't have a lot of burdens on me. The older you get family and business and things, they start weighing you down. But back in those days, I, I, um, you know, it was all right there. And in fact, uh, tomorrow as we're taping tomorrow, I'm going over to Chester to meet up with, you know, a lot of the crew guys and girls that were on that 1993 and 1994 team. They meet once a month over at Brock's. And oh. so I'm going to go join them tomorrow, my, my wife and I, because we have a lot of friends that I haven't seen in a long time that uh, worked on that car, their wives and girlfriends and things of that nature. So, but, you know, you got to have a break. I don't care if it's NASCAR, you know, to get back to Jimmy's kind of question, NASCAR and professional wrestling have a lot of similarities. And one of the things that really has to happen, you know, to be a star in NASCAR you know, you got to win, yes, but you have to connect with the fans. The fans are the ones that vote for most popular driver in NASCAR. Same way with wrestling. You can be a great worker. I mean, we know so many the, – the people that I've always thought, or some of them, that were the best workers never really got the right push, in my view, because they didn't connect quite as well with the fans as maybe somebody else did in a certain time and place. So – you know, I was always good to the fans, same with my brother. I mean, my brother would tell you he had a relationship with one main financial because of the way he treated them. And my brother was a five-time NASCAR most popular driver. 
his connection with the fans probably extended his career seven or eight years because, you know, you don't have all the tools and equipment to win your whole life. You know, you get older and things change and you get get in rides that are not as competitive as you used to have. And the fans kept us both out there. And the fans, for me, helped me get into my TV role, which was much more, let's just say, profitable and lucrative to me than my actual racing career was. TV was a lot of money in TV. And to get to work for Fox for all those years, I mean, whoever would have thought somebody with my accent would ever get a job in television. And But, you know, we I connected with the fan base, and that helped me on the track and in the TV booth. Okay, now, now, personal question. First of all, your your accent. A lot of women think it's kind of cute, anyway. They say a lot of women. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess men too. I don't look, know. And in some look, and in some cases, <laughs> it's very important for people not to understand a damn thing you're saying. So it's all good, <laughs> especially when cutting a promo. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm the Scott Steiner of NASCAR racing. I can talk, and maybe forty percent of the people understand me. The other half don't, and the other half couldn't care less. So there you have it. Well, there you go. So I have a, I have a, I have a question here because it's kind of weird. All right, top speed of a monster ass fucking go kart is what on a go kart. Um, go kart top speed would probably be seventy five to eighty miles an hour, Damn. but you're sitting one inch off the ground wow. with nothing around you, and you've got other carts and got a potential to rub tires and things with other people, other dumbasses running 80 miles an hour as well. So I say that only to say the, the sensation of speed is much greater in a go-kart than it is in most, in most cases in a stock car. That's, that's okay. amazing. That, wait a minute. Sorry. One, one, one second. One second, sir. Jimmy. No, I'm no, sorry. no, go ahead. And then you go from that to say your next, spot or next your next move after that was what to the late model stock cars let's call it the nascar back in those days the like a weekly racing series we raced at south boston orange county south side speedway would be one kind of in your backyard that was i went from go-karts in 89 after i won the world karting championship went into full-bodied stock cars to start the 1989 season okay wow. and that speed would be what well on the race now if you get if you went to a bigger track, it'd be greater. But I'm going to say average speed, say at a South Boston Speedway, about the same as a go-kart in the mid-90s, you know, early to mid-90s. Uh, but you got to make a sharp turn and go back the other way. You know, so <laughs> that's, what, that's, that's what that changes. Okay, so now we're talking 80 miles an hour, then you get to NASCAR. So you're kind of yeah. the same way, right, in a way? Yeah, Okay, and now you're what at NASCAR average? Well, my yeah, my yeah, my step from the racing at South Boston Speedway and Orange County Speedway and Southside Speedway was going to work for Don Beverly driving in the NASCAR, which was then called the Bush Grand National Series. These days it's called the NASCAR Xfinity Series. Same series, different sponsor back in those days. And top speed for those cars, people the initial thing they would think is Daytona and Talladega. But at Daytona and Talladega, we ran restrictor plates, which really restricted the horsepower in the engines. The fastest I ran in those cars would probably be Texas Motor Speedway, uh, maybe Michigan Speedway, two-mile oval without a restrictor plate. We would qualify there and have a top speed going in turn one of, you know, 205 to 210, 212 right in there. 
That's amazing. Okay. So, so I have one more question, Jimmy. I know you're itching. No, to get it. I, no, I no. Cool. Go, brother. No, no, no. I'm glad. And, and RJ, you must not be a redneck. But anyway, <laughs> I, I'll, I, I'll have a story on that aspect. But go ahead. Both of these guys, if they're on this show with you, they both got to have a, a strain of redneck in them somewhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Hermie, very serious question. How do you go from 80 miles an hour Let's just say, let's up it a little bit. Cause I think you probably went, I think you were being modest. Um, Cause I rode with you and I want to talk about that later on, but I rode with you <laughs> the most. Oh my God. Anyway, um, I'll get to that. So, but, so I'm the, I'm the re go ahead. You want to say I'm the reason you started drinking. Okay. All right. I mean, I just put you in there. That way it's always an excuse. <laughs> so, you go from 80 miles an hour to fucking 205 miles an hour. You fucking shit me right now. Well, the faster you go, the more you get paid. You know how that goes. So, um, oh. you know, but, but, but as you go to bigger tracks and you run faster speeds, theoretically speaking, the cars are safer. You know, they're built safer. I went into, you know, um, you know, all the cars, the roll cages, the bodies, now, unfortunately, you know, Dale Earnhardt, the late, great Dale Earnhardt, uh, got killed in 2001. That's when people in NASCAR and around the sport really started to take the safety more seriously. That's when we started to get Hans devices to keep your neck from snapping forward in an impact. That's when we, used to, we started getting safer barriers, which was energy resistant and absorbing uh, walls. But back in my day, dude, the walls were concrete. And so when you hit them, you stop. And those sudden stops are really what hurt, you know. And I had a lot of bad wrecks. How many concussions did I have? Back in my day, we didn't count concussions. We didn't like it is now. You've got to go to the infield care center. You've got to get cleared. You've got to go to neurologist. And, I mean, we see drivers last year barely hitting the wall, getting concussions and being out for six, eight weeks like William Byron and my buddy of mine, Kurt Busch, I mean, his career is over now, and the wreck he had just wasn't wasn't that much to it. But back in my day, you know, I hit the wall, and I would stay away from the infield care center if I could, because if it, or if they asked me a question, you know, I'd try to dodge it as much as possible because I didn't want to be taken out of my car. And so, I, I, I'm a, my throttle hung in Indianapolis in the early 2000s. I hit the wall during practice at the brickyard and I was throwing up, I mean, time after time after time, but held it down long enough to go to the infield care center and look at the nurse in the middle and get a clean bill of health and go back up and get in the car and get in the backup car and go. Because if I had gone to a hospital, I would have been out for a extended period of time. And then you know what happens in somebody else is driving my car and just like wrestling, you lose your spot. That's why a lot of these guys and girls, you know, try to do anything they can to 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 stay active because it's not it's it's uh you can easily be replaced in both of those industries. That that's amazing because listening to you talk about the the evolution of the uh, car racing industry and we yeah. talk about here about the evolution of the wrestling business. I'm listening to you talk about it and the similarities are so uh, incredible. It almost feels like it almost feels like you had to work your way up through the indie circuit, so to speak, yeah, sure. to get to 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 where you were in the big time. 
And it's the same way in the wrestling business. And you talk about connecting with the audience. That's a big thing we talk about here on our show a lot yeah. is yeah. that the actual personality has to come out that the people want to get invested in. Yeah, it's cool to say, oh, yeah, I, I get behind the number 23 car, whatever the case may be. You don't pick a number, any number. Yeah. But hey, this driver, Hermie Sadler, whoever it happens to be, you know, Kurt Busch, you know, oh, man, I love this guy. Yeah. And I want to see him win. That's a... I'm just saying, and I tell you, I tell you two more similarities. The drivers, the first driver who connected with NASCAR fans on a big scale, that wasn't a, let's just call it, have that Southern heritage redneck. You know, because you look at Richard Petty, David Pearson, Kyle Petty, Dale Earnhardt, they all had that, you know, that uh, rebel. You know, they could really. Uh, connect with the audience and the audience and the fans could relate to him. And much like Steve Austin and some of the others that, you know, relatable figure in y'all's industry, the first one in NASCAR that kind of surprised me at how quickly he caught on with the fans was Jeff Gordon, because yeah. Jeff Gordon came in in the early nineties from California. He didn't drink beer. He drank wine. You know, he wasn't a anti-authority figure like a Dale Earnhardt or Steve Austin whatever. He was just so different. And then he comes in and him and Earnhardt have a feud, you know, Earnhardt's the established, you know, NASCAR, you know, six time at that time champion. Here comes pretty boy, Jeff Gordon. They come in and they, and they, they, they rub fenders, but then Jeff Gordon gets a rub off of Dale Earnhardt. And he ends up being the one that takes our sport more to a more national level than just regional. And so I give Jeff a lot of credit for, you know, coming in and kind of taking those slings and arrows from all the NASCAR diehard fans and the, the Dale Earnhardt fans, because he ultimately was what gave our sport traction to go into markets like LA and, you know, Phoenix and, and, and really do well in those other parts of the country. Because prior to that, you know, we were basically a mid Atlantic regional type sport. And, uh, but Jeff Gordon, put a lot of money in a lot of people's pockets uh, with what he did coming in, you know, in the mid to late nineties, he really, uh, really set NASCAR on fire. Yeah. So we have the, um, to look back on it, you know, being a part of TNA, you going back and watching, uh, I'm, I'm sure you have seen, you sir, saw Earl there in the NWA there in the early eighties there when he was there before he made the jump over to WWF at that time. But, the similarities you're talking about brought this up is the development of the sport of both NASCAR stock car, whatever you would like to call it to professional wrestling. When you started there in 93, when you got to TNA there in the early two thousands, fast forward to now, you mentioned, you know, a lot of the safety of NASCAR, you know, we're seeing a lot of the safety in professional wrestling now. Um, like I said, I'm not, I'm not sure how much you're watching professional wrestling nowadays um, compared to NASCAR, but what do you see in nowadays that, you know, leaps and bounds made that each individual sport better? Well, I'll say generically speaking, um, not all changes that have taken place in professional wrestling and not all changes that have taken place in NASCAR have been for the better. Um, I think you know, and I watch some wrestling. I still have a lot of friends uh, in the industry. I watch when I can. I'm not a loyal watcher of any brand right now at all. 
I don't watch NASCAR all the time either, although I do keep up with it. But I'm, I'm not doing the TV anymore, all that. But in some ways, I think that professional wrestling and NASCAR is, I, I, this might not be the right word, but it's watered down more now than it was back in the heyday. You know, for me, it was a little more edgy, uh, and I like that. Um, it, now it's a little more conforming, in my view. I know a lot of that has to do with TV, and you have to, you know, play by TV's rules and, you know, and all of that. But I really enjoy the, you know, and I know Jimmy and, and Brian know, you know, the attitude era type days because that's when you could really let the personalities show and was everything appropriate that I want my daughter watching everything all the time? No. But as I'm talking to you now, it, I'm 54 years old and I've kind of, you know, I look at stuff now and, you know, I hear this a lot, not just wrestling, but also NASCAR. Yeah. You know, since Dale Earnhardt died, I don't, I don't, I don't follow it that close anymore. Well, that's because we don't have the personalities in NASCAR we used to have. We don't have the rivalries in NASCAR that we used to have that were really believable and sold souvenirs and got people to buy tickets. And, you know, wrestling bookers and promoters have a much more difficult job now, in my opinion, because you can't push the envelopes as far as you once could because of TV and, you know, other, other things as well. Is it still entertaining? Yes. But a lot of it goes back to a lot of people that I'm close with and friends with. I, I don't know these the new generation as much as I did my generation. So they're probably just as talented. They're probably just as entertaining, but you know, my, my, my guys, my group of guys are, are, um, you know, their, their heyday is gone. And so, you know, I have to, somebody has to really stand out these days to really, really impress me. And a, and a couple of them do, you know, but, um, but, but it certainly has changed and it's watered down to a point where, you know, it's got to be something really, really special to get my attention these days. So, Hermie, tell me who 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 catches your attention. Well, I mean, uh, Seth Rollins, you know, somebody like him that, of course, back in his day, he worked some shows for us, you know, yeah. you know, way back when. And so, you know, when I look at, you know, when I look at, uh, when I watch WWE uh, now, there's very few people that I, turn in to see, but I still keep in touch with Seth a little bit and, and talk to him. And he's somebody that up to recently would every once in a while reach out and say hi and thank you for what you did for me back in the early 2000s. It helped me get to where I am. You know, a lot of those guys um, and girls don't do that. Uh, but I, but I like him because he's, he's, uh, I know kind of where he started, where he came from. And he's, he's not the biggest guy, you know, he's not, he's not, six, five and a, and a huge guy, but he's, and look, he's really improved his, uh, Mike skills in my view. Uh, he's always been a good wrestler, you know, in my view. So, um, but I, he's improved in the areas he need to improve. He needed to improve upon to, you know, to kind of, you know, push his, uh, push his marketability, you know, to the next level. And, you know, when I, I watch AEW a little bit, but I look, I, my same buddies, you know, I mean, you know, I'm uh, really close friends with uh, with Jeff Hardy. You know him and Beth and their two daughters came to the Carolina football game with me a couple of weeks ago. I have a lot of respect for you know for um, Sanjay Dutt. I still see him on there. Uh, Jay Lethal. You know I I still I like to watch because 
there are a lot of guys that that I had a small hand in giving them opportunities. I knew nothing in the TNA house show days and the UWF days. I could bring nothing to the table as far as telling them how to wrestle or how to talk and all that. But I was able to provide them a platform and a you know and a and a and a good run of events that gave them a chance to work on their task and their trade back in those days while they were making a little bit of money that, that, um, that I hope at least I can say the same thing for AJ Styles, Christopher Daniels, all those guys that I really think a lot of, you know, those opportunities we gave them back in those days, uh, I'm, I hope help them mold their craft to give them the opportunities to make, to make the livings they're making today. Well, Herbie, let's, since you did this, uh, easy transition for me, um, you know, Back in 2005 is when you, you know, you started the, you know, the UWF. Um, and I want to say to you, first of all, before I even start this, um, yes, you did do a lot for a lot of people, um, including myself. I was actually going through a transition where I had lost my job at WB. Um, I was trying to find myself. Um, you graciously reached out to me and my father, uh, my father first, I'm sure. Um, and I was pulled into your, 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 in, in my opinion, wonderful, wonderful place to work. Um, you supplemented money to me while I wasn't having a job and you probably supplemented a lot of money to these other guys that you'd mentioned or mentioned that they were not getting at that time. Cause times were very, very different for that TNA total nonstop impact, you know, crew and wrestlers and all that and, and you provided a lot of guys some extra income and not only that you were a really really cool guy to work for and provided something that actually the company that we work for didn't even provide i don't want to bury the company but i'm saying but you had catering for us you had accommodations for us you had things that big wig companies do and you were able to do that and if people don't understand what i'm talking about I'm going to fucking explain it because when you go on the fucking road, you want to have some kind of support. And if you don't have that support, you're a lost soul. You're out there. Yes. Your air flares pay for, or your cars pay for, but once you get there, then what the fuck, if that makes any sense to people that aren't listening and understanding and Hermie, you can elaborate when you want, but, but what I'm saying to you is, you allowed guys to make extra money. Their hotel was paid for and you fed them while they were with you. Yeah. After that, you fend for yourself. And I get that. I mean, we've had some nights too, as well, where we went out and we, and we went to a bar and everybody hung out together and guess At what? All. Yeah. Nobody paid shit. Hermie yeah. did. Yeah. But what I'm saying is you're, you, you, you don't have to hope you absolutely 100% took care of the biggest stars that are out there right now. And it's yeah. unbelievable to me. So with that being said, now that I've put you over, cause that's what I do here. Um, I appreciate that. No, Let me say two things real quick. Um, I started doing these, you know, live events that were impact live events, TNA wrestling live events, transitioning over to, UWF when the TNA thing wasn't lining up. There were a couple of reasons I did that, but I want to make sure I get this out there. Um, the main reason I did that, or one of the main reasons was because of your uncle, Dave Hebner. 
Dave Hebner was a good friend of mine. He helped me, you know, you, you knew this, but he, he made a connection with me with, with uh, Dwayne Johnson back when Dwayne, when, when Rocky was really getting started, we did some commercials for me at my car dealerships and all that. And the tables turned at some point, you know, your dad to a degree, but Dave, they had um, been in my view and I don't have to get into the details and you can disagree with my characterization were severely mistreated by WWE, uh, shit on, crapped on, whatever you want to call it. And I saw Dave there, a guy that, you know, your dad was more of a kind of a go with the flow guy. He could go anywhere, work anywhere, do anything. That period of time really hurt Dave and put up, I mean, put Dave in a bad spot in a bad way. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was be able to turn around and try to help Dave and try to put him in a position where he could not only make a little money, but, but hold his head high around people that he respected and that respected him. And so, um, and I'll also say before I get off the subject of Dave, God rest his soul. Um, it is a tragedy that in my opinion, that your dad and especially Dave were not put into the WWE hall of fame before Dave passed away. So uh, I'll never, although I have nothing to do with it, um, and I've had my run-ins with Vince McMahon and had my issues with him and all that, but to be so, uh, to, to treat them like that for any kind of reason whatsoever, you know, uh, I'll never get over that. But anyway, I started this to get Dave out there and ultimately Earl and you, um, and and so the other thing that, that really got me going was my relationship with Jeff Jarrett. Uh, you know, Jeff and I have been friends since the early, early 90s. And, you know, um, when he and Jerry decided to, to put their deal together with TNA and I knew kind of the, some of the uphill battles they were facing and otherwise, it just it just fit. It was something that, hey, I love wrestling. I've got people that I love and care about, like Dave Hebner, like Earl Hebner, like Jeff Jarrett. I can help. We can do this. This is something that I can do and and be an asset to the other people that are involved in it. And, you know, as far as how we did the shows, I don't know any other way is but other than wide open because not everything in life, Brian, and you guys know this, revolves around money. But yes, I mean, we, we negotiated rates for everybody, what it was going to cost them to come work. And we did double shot weekends. We did Friday night, Saturday night, everywhere we went. Everybody got two shows in. I paid them a fair wage, did all that. But I wanted people to want to come to work at our shows because they had choices, maybe not many, but choices. <clears throat> and I, I figured if these guys and girls knew they were coming to work for me, where they knew to your point that we were going to be in a nice hotel I was going to have their cars taken care of. I was going to feed them, do all that. Maybe that make a difference in somebody's decision-making process um, when they were deciding where to go to work. And, you know, those for the majority, I had a few that thought they were bigger and better than the promotion, and you're going to have all that. But 99.9% .9 of them, I really and truly believe, uh, were appreciative and the same ones we see now, main event in WrestleManias, came out at my shows and worked in front of three and 400 people and busted their ass every time they went out there. 
and I'll always be appreciative of that. That's amazing, and I find it incredible the way you you took care of your your talent in that regard because people don't realize, you know, they think, oh, it's WWE. Hey, they told me not to. I'll be honest with you, Bill Barons and some of these people who are nice guys, mm -hmm. but you can't get motels for them. You can't do catering for them. You can't have parties for them. You can't do. They're gonna shit on you. And I said, Bill, this is the way that I would want to be treated. So I'm going to treat the people this way and the ones who don't appreciate it and shit on me, I won't book them anymore. But we worked it out just fine. I thought. Awesome. I have a, I have a quick question here for, it comes out of left field a little bit here yeah. after, especially after listening to that wonderful story you told, um, you eventually made it your way into the ring. Yeah. <laughs> How did you get co coerced and who convinced you? Hey, you need to make some appearances in the ring. And and I remember, you know, you with uh, Ron Killings. Yeah. Truth, yeah. Who is one of Great the funniest guy. guys. Oh, my goodness. Unbelievable so, person but, and athlete. No question. Yeah. But but um, who, talk, who talked you into getting into the ring and actually getting involved in that way? Yeah, just so I'm clear, that was never anything that I wanted to do. Um, but I go back to my relationship with, with Jeff Jarrett. Jeff and Jerry reached out to me. Of course, Jeff and Jerry used to come deer hunting with me and my family started in the late eighties, early nineties. I've been known Jeff, you know, all that time. And when they took this plunge, I go back to the point I just said, there are a lot of people in the professional wrestling industry that have differing opinions of Jeff Jarrett. A lot of people have differing opinions of Jerry Jarrett. A lot of people have differing opinions of a lot of people that were a part of the TNA when it started. I looked at it from a completely different set of eyeballs i looked at it like these guys are going to spend their own money to give these guys and girls a job so how can i help so initially jeff called me and said hey we don't have any marketing money whatsoever this is before dixie carter came along we don't have any marketing money whatsoever how can you help us get some mainstream media coverage for what we're trying to do to launch back in the early days, which was the Wednesday night pay-per-views uh, for TNA. And so my, the first thing I did was I brought in racing friends of mine, like Sterling Marlin and uh, about the Dillon brothers at one time. I brought drivers to come in to be a part of the shows as a favor to me. Nobody ever got paid, including me, to to go to try to get some mainstream media coverage for TNA wrestling. And that was newspapers, news channels, you know, it's a whole lot different in the early 2000s as it is in 2023. We didn't have Facebook and Twitter or X or all these other things. I mean, you really had to local TV stations, local cable, all that. You really had to do something outside the box to get outside the box media. So it started out with me bringing some of my friends from NASCAR in to, um, you know, to to be on the show so we could promote them uh, through NASCAR and their appearances through all those channels. And then it, that led up to me ultimately doing a, a pay-per-view match with uh, Ron Killings um, in Nashville. And so, you know, and Ron Killings was great. I mean, he, I had limited athletic ability and no wrestling ability and he worked it out that we could get the job done and make it believable and viable and 
you know, was it great? No. Uh, but did it serve the purpose of what I was trying to do for Jeff and Jerry at the time? Yes. We were able to take those clips of that. I mean, no offense, but Fox Sports and FX, they didn't care about at that time AJ Styles or anybody else. But hey, send me a 45 second clip of Hermie Saddle looking like a dumbass in the ring. We'll play that. <laughs> and so we were able to take that footage and get some headway out of it and get some free marketing and advertising that was very beneficial to Jeff and Jerry in the beginning. And that's all I was trying to do. So Hermie, um, we're going to move on to our third count here in a minute. I have one more question. And before we do, um, I, I, I just, I, I find this very, 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 very like awesome for you. Like it's like, to me, it would be like amazing. But, like, you work with the likes of Rhino, Jeff Hardy, Team 3D. You're a fucking NASCAR driver. All right? Bro, your life has gone from driving a go-kart to uh, – I'm I'm not trying to degrade you. I'm sorry. I don't mean to say it like that. Yes, you are. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) From a go-kart on dirt track to – driving 210 miles an hour in a NASCAR, meeting all these guys like Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt and all these guys into the world of professional wrestling, and then not only meeting and working, but meeting the biggest stars in the business, man. Seth Rollins, I mean, Jeff Hardy, Team 3D. Dude, please explain to me how fucking lucky you must feel because you're very, very very blessed. Yeah, you know, and I... I know a wide variety of people. I mean, I know uh, I have met and become friends with and have known people. I mean, you talk about wrestling, racing, you know, country music. Blake Shelton's a great family friend of ours. He was in my brother's wedding, all these kind of things. But, you know, and I said this to you before, Brian, I don't know what it is about the wrestling community, but they have, I mean, and there's a lot of, Screwed up people in the professional wrestling industry, Brian, as you know. You know some of the phone calls I got of some of the problems that were going on when guys and girls were on my watch in these towns. But I never saw, all I saw was people that I loved and people that I liked and people that I enjoyed being around. And I think you'll agree, I treated, talking about Team 3D, and I had some, I butted heads with Bubba Ray more than once about money and these kind of things because uh but once we got over all that we were fine but i i looked at it like i looked at everybody the same and i treated everybody the same once i got the finances worked out with everybody i don't care if, if it was the guys with high spots that were coming in to put the ring together they got the same room that you know Jeff Hardy got or that you know Seth Rollins got i treat everybody exactly the same and you know i for me i didn't really know it at the time brian but back in the early 2000s i was racing which not only it sounds easy to say i was racing but racing means i'm gone three or four days a week all across the country doing appearances doing things for sponsors the pressure of performing racing trying to you know i My middle daughter, Haley, was diagnosed with autism in 2002, right before all this was going on. 
And I had three car dealerships at the time. I had about 115 employees. And then I do it, do all this wrestling stuff on top of all that. I do it because of Jeff and Jerry and all my friends, as we've all discussed. But in some ways, doing these things was an outlet for me. I didn't get to go all the time. But when I had a couple of days off, as crazy as it sounds, if I could get away from the pressure and the problems and the issues and things, running businesses and, and family and racing and getting a damn car and ride with you and Earl down the road and go to a wrestling show somewhere, it was just fun. And I didn't give a shit about anything else, you know, for those couple hours. And I mean, you know, we could laugh at anything and would laugh at anything. And so, uh, but to get to your point, I just never, you know, I, I, we went not long ago to Blake Shelton concert in Greensboro, stayed on the bus, did all that. I can do that same way. I, I'm friends with Luke Bryan. I mean, whatever, but I can hang out with anybody. And because you run across people, especially on the road that I've traveled, you know, from the bottom to the top, sometimes those on the bottom end up at the top and some of those at the top end up on the bottom. So you never know who you're talking to or who you're helping or whatever the case may be. So I've always treated everybody the same and that's worked pretty good. So we're going to do this, Hermie. Here's what we're going to do. Um, although I don't want to stop, but anyway, but I know we're on time restraints because Hermie Sadler is so fucking important. Um, <laughs> Not at all. But what we're going to let is RJ a get a question in or no? RJ, he's, 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 he's not a redneck. Not, okay. um, so, <laughs> so what we're going to do is this. We're it's gonna not come too back. late to try it, RJ. Well, see, this is the thing, though. So I <laughs> – we're going to make this a little longer. But anyways, um, my father-in-law actually used to work on open car or open tire uh, cars in Indianapolis growing up. Yeah. So he – got me into watching stock cars, NASCAR. And actually, Hey, he's like, okay, he actually gave me homework. He actually had me going back and watching you and your brother race online. Yep. Now you can Google it and find it all over the place. Yeah. And I'm like, well, then I kind of wanted to impress him. So I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, I'm, I never... I'm kind of adopted it, I guess you could yeah. say. I grew up around, you know, NASCAR and full body stock car racing. So certainly I know some guys that have done the open wheel stuff, but it never, I never caught the bug with that. Like I did with, mm. um, you know, with NASCAR. Hey, Brian, let, I, let me ask you a question. Sure. What is your fondest memory of the either impact TNA house shows or UWF shows that we did back in those days? Do you have, cause we did have a lot of fun, but is there, a loop or a trip or a show that stands out to you? There is. And um, I've got that highlighted for our next segment. And I want to touch on that too. So yeah, I, I, yes, I'm going to, I want to answer your question, but okay. I want to do, we get out of this segment right here and head to our next segment. And we have fan, uh, fan questions for you as well. All right. And I also want to talk about driving with you and how you pack. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Now. Let's talk about all that next in a third count. This is your three count. We are back with our third count with legendary icon, Mr. Hermie Sadler. You better redo Herm that. 
Why not? You're an IK. To me. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate uh, that. But we have uh, we have some listener questions here uh, for you uh, that we haven't been that we haven't talked about yet. Um, but our first one here comes from WWE Master 2018. Yes, do you have any funny stories about Abyss and Scott Steiner? Um, boy, both of those guys, I've had some times with them. Um, Scott Steiner. Actually, Scott went with me to Talladega. He stayed with me a couple of days in Talladega uh, at the race. I don't remember the exact year, but he came down to Talladega and spent uh, a couple of days with me on my bus. And anybody who's ever been to Talladega, uh, Talladega Boulevard, which is the infield at Talladega, is nice. And so <laughs> Scott came down and enjoyed some of that. Um, I will say, and this is probably nothing that's funny, but it's a distinct memory that I had of Scott. Unfortunately, you know, way back when, when Jeff Jarrett's wife, Jill passed away, um, I went to Nashville for the, for the funeral. And of course, all of Jeff's daughters who are now grown like mine are, were very little and young and a sad, sad, sad thing. But one of the things that I remember that I did get a chuckle out of that day is Scott was there and he cannot tie necktie. And so I remember being, uh, we had adjoining rooms. I remember walking over there to him, trying to get ready to go to the to the service. And you should have seen me I'm trying to tie Scott's necktie on him because his neck is about three times the size of mine. So it wouldn't work that way. And he's sweating like a Bowman hog, you know, just trying to get dressed. And, you know, so every time I, you know, see him and, and uh, ironically enough, say it again, I think the last time I saw Scott was at Jeff's at Jerry's service in Nashville when he passed away. Um, but on the wrestling side, I will say the first show that Scott worked for me and Brian will remember this. I used to do one of the things I did, I would sell what's called an ultimate experience, which is the wrestlers people would pay which was in those days was good money probably 50 75 bucks to to go get autographs of the wrestlers you know before the show because when the show was over everybody wanted to haul ass we all knew that but so i had to you know make a deal with everybody because everybody wanted to sell their own merch and so my deal was always before the show based on what i pay you you come sign autographs for the fans it is only say 50 or 75, whatever the, maybe the first two rows around the ring, whatever it was at that time. I said, you, you sign for my guest first. And then at intermission or after the show, you can sell your stuff and do all that. So the first time Scott worked a show for me was in Wilson, North Carolina, then at Bill Ellis's convention center at the barbecue place. So, you know, and that was one of the shows I happened to be at. And look, I was, I knew of Scott, Back in the, those days, I'm much closer with him now, but we weren't close friends by any means. But, you know, Scott rolled in with two huge red suitcases full of merch. And he rolls up and he says, all right, you know, where's the meet and greet? Because he was pissed off. He had to do a meet and greet anyway. He said, where's the meet and greet? We're up here, it's up here, you know, da, da, da. He goes and he carries both of his suitcases full of merch and he starts putting it out. 
And you're clearly by my contract not supposed to do that at the at the meet and greet before the show. So Shep Moss goes up to him and says, hey, Scott, you can't do that. <clears throat> you know what Scott tells Shep? Go fuck yourself. You know? <laughs> and, uh, I'll sell whatever I want. So then Shep comes and gets me. Hermie. Steiner's got his table set up out there at the Ultimate Experience. And he told me to go fuck myself. I said, well, okay. Mm -hmm. So I go over there. And it's kind of one of those things, a similar thing with with uh, with uh, Bully Ray I had. I go up to Scott and I say, Scott, we talked about all this. The pre-show ultimate experience is for the guests that paid the money. You know, we've got stuff for you to sign for them. And then at intermission or after the show, depending on when you're on the card, you can sell your stuff. He told me the same thing. Hermie, go fuck yourself. Hmm. I said, okay, but take your shit and get out of here because you're not working on this show tonight. And so we had to have a little moment, you know, kind of like that. And then ultimately, you know, we uh, sat down in the back room and figured it out and worked it out um, to where he understood what I was doing and why and what he, and after that first time, he was a, he worked a number of our shows and Despite what everybody told me before I tried to book him, he showed up at every event on time, did what I asked him to do, and and we did good business after that first night. But he was gonna try us. He was gonna he was Scott Steiner and we were just getting started and he wasn't gonna listen and he wasn't gonna do this and that and the other. Um, but um we worked through that. But to have Scott Steiner to look at you and be serious. And tell you to go fuck yourself is not not a comforting thing, you know. It's not really how you want to start your night off. But uh, ultimately, we worked it out and and did fine. But as far as abyss, I don't remember any, um, you know. God, I do remember one thing, Brian, but I can't bring it up because it brings in somebody else who used to work for me. Um, I'll just say this. Hermie, Hermie, we're, we're, we're a very open show here. You, you're more than welcome to put anything down you don't want to mind putting out. Well, mm. let me just say this. I'm not going to call anybody's names, but mm. the Chris Park, as you know, Brian, A100 guy, perfect, mm. hard worker. He showed up at all the shows. He wanted to do thumbtacks and tables and nails at every show. You know, we had to talk him out of it, like, Let's save that for another one. Let's save that for another one. But he was always one of the first ones to show up, would help do anything, put the ring together, whatever, help put up stuff after the show. <clears throat> but the only night we had a cross, semi-cross word, I'll just say this. I used to bring one of the girls up that worked at my NASCAR team down in Statesville, North Carolina, to help take tickets up and do merch and all that. And let me just say, I think she was the recipient of the Black Hole Slam one night. <laughs> <laughs> at the thing, at the time, I, that was in Williamston, North Carolina. I'll never forget it. Um, you know, two consenting adults. But um, after that, uh, my little girl went on back to Statesville and <laughs> she wasn't interested in helping out the the boys anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, every, every minute of every day, 
was a blessing with, with Abyss. And, I, and I'm being serious about that. Nice. Well, Hermie, you, you said something real quick, though. You have to remember this, too. This is this is hilarious. This is something I remember. Um, I do believe Scott Steiner cost you some money one night because you flipped out. And I've never seen Hermie Sadler really, truly flip out. Like, I've seen you flip out, but not, like, to the extreme. But then I've seen you flip the fuck out. And it happened, if you remember, I don't remember where we were. I don't. I don't. I think it was Jacksonville. North Carolina. And Scott Steiner went through. When we, the- when you, when we told a security guy to slap Scott Steiner? No, 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 that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. The one where he went through the crowd impromptu and just went nuts and started beating whoever he was. I don't even remember who he's wrestling. Yeah. And it was that, was. that was Jacksonville. It was? Yeah. Oh my God! I, I, yeah. I, wow! All right. Yeah, he um, one for me. He was a loose cannon, <laughs> but when you when you when you compare him to Abyss, I mean uh, to Sabu, <laughs> we were. I say we we were all in Philadelphia. That show we did in one of the shows we did in Philadelphia, Saturday night at the old ECW Alhambra Arena, whatever it's yep. called. Yep. That's the night they threw. 400 folding chairs into the middle of the ring, all that. Well, we did a show Friday night somewhere. We did this show Saturday night. I had to leave after the show Saturday night and drive to Pocono, Pennsylvania for the race. I was doing TV for the NASCAR race the following day in Pocono. So I left all y'all. I thought in good hands. I drive to Pocono. So my live TV show starts at 10 o'clock the next morning. So I'm on live TV, and as I'm doing live TV, my phone is steady ringing. I had a maybe a BlackBerry back in those days. Who knows? It's steady, <laughs> steady ringing, and all these strange numbers. Make a long story short. During commercial break, I finally called the number back. It was Shep Moss, and he said, "Hermie, we got a problem." I said, "What's the problem?" He said, "We all trying to. We all supposed to be checked out here by eleven o'clock." And Sabu will not answer the door to his room. What do you want me to do? I said, Shep, Dan, what do you, I'm in Pocono. What do you want me to do? I said, call the police. And if he's dead, call the coroner. And if he's alive, call the police. I don't know what else to tell you. So they finally get into the room where Sabu, Sabu is, because he's still napping. We'll call it that. But he had the goddamn snack machine, the vending machine, in the room with him. <laughs> so not only, I mean, I've heard of a guy trying to maybe get a pack of nads out of He took the whole vending machine into his room and had, had, had uh, I'll say, nicely vandalized the, um, the snack machine mm-hmm. to get a pack of nads out of it. So that was, a, that was an interesting uh, evening. But I tell you, um, I have being on the road with y'all, Brian, was very educational. Very educational. <laughs> <laughs> I love how, how politically correct you were with that. Hey, did, did I tell you the about JBL when he wrecked my wife's Tahoe? Do you know that story? No. So this was still, they were WWE. We went to, 
I got a buddy of mine that had a like a like a like a tour bus. We drove to Baltimore, Maryland for Monday Night Raw. And after the show's over, we picked up <clears throat> we were gonna go back to the coast of North Carolina to Bell Haven, North Carolina to go bear hunting for three days. So JBL, Ron Simmons, uh Prince Albert, I guess uh, Matt Bloom was his name, mm -hmm. Prince Albert. Mm -hmm. Uh, big boss man trying to think who about seven or eight of them get on the bus with us after Monday Night Raw in Baltimore we drive to Bellhaven, North Carolina I'd already gotten somebody from here at home to take my wife's she, I had just bought her a black Yukon Denali carried all the guns and stuff to the hunt lodge in Bellhaven. So we drive, you know, Raw wasn't over with till like 11. So it was like five o'clock in the morning by the time we got all the way back to Balt to the, to the hunting lodge. So we go right into the hunt. You know, we go hunting, have a great time. The first night back at the lodge, we cook, eat, having drinks, playing cards, doing all that. Well, we had been up for like 36 hours straight from driving to Baltimore going to the show, driving back to North Carolina, up all night, hunting all day. I went to bed. I wake up the next morning, walk downstairs at the hunt lodge, and everybody's like, Hermie, are you all right? Are you all right? Hermie, are you all right? I'm like, I mean, am I all right? What's wrong with y'all? After I went to bed the night before, John decided to borrow my wife's Yukon Denali drove off site to do whatever as only John knows how to do. Apparently on his way back, he did not pay attention to the signs that were coming back down the road that says we were in Bellhaven, North Carolina, right on the intercoastal waterway. Oh, as you come down the road towards the hunt lodge, the, the, the signs say road ends a mile. Road ends a half a mile. Road ends a quarter of a mile. Road ends 1,500 feet. 1,000 <laughs> feet. 500 feet. But the turn to the lodge was back where it said, road ends in one mile. <laughs> <laughs> and drove my wife Denali through two cement barricades, through a, um, a guardrail, and he's teetering over top the intercoastal waterway. No, the right front wow. tire is in the back seat of my Denali. John gets out of my Denali. Apparently, you smoke fly. You totaled it. It was totaled. And he walks back to the hunt lodge a mile down the road, comes back to the house, goes upstairs, gets in the bed, and goes to sleep. <laughs> we wake up the next morning. Police are at the door. Cops are around. What happened? You know, and, uh, yeah, so he wrecked my wife's. It had less than 2,000 miles on it. Wrecked oh. her Denali. And look, it, mistakes happen. Don't get me wrong. But he just got out and left it there and walked back down the road, came to the lodge, went upstairs, and went to bed. And like the next morning when I'm like halfway, like, John, what is wrong? He's like, it's like it was, he didn't understand why I was upset. It's my fault. You did, know? did it, did he get out of the DUI? Well, yeah, I got that handled. Yeah. We, <laughs> we, we got it thrown in the trash can. But 
What I needed to throw in the trash can was my Denali. <laughs> <laughs> but he wow, he sure did. He um, he wrecked the Denali, and I, and but I have to say that after insurance claims and all that, he wrote me a check to take care of the uh, loss of value and the difference of the Denali. But more of the story, don't let him drive anything that belongs to you. Period. I can't wait till the next time I talk to John because you know you you know what I'm going to bring up. Anyways, that's an incredible story. It it true story, one hundred percent. Well, he, he my old golf buddy. So uh, you remember those days? Abby. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So and I got to say, I have had so much fun. That particular night aside, I had more fun with John and Ron Simmons than I'm going to tell mm -hmm. you. I mean, and really, really, truly good-hearted people i mean they yes. I've, I've been around them you know we talk about the fun the crazy all that but i've been around both of them when they did so much for you know um disadvantaged people and kids especially and all that i mean i uh and i still talk to both of them occasionally all that but um they are not um uh, them being crazy was not was not a joke it was not a gimmick they mm -hmm. are they are both legit both legit. Yo, I agree. I agree. I agree, Army. Um, it took me 30 minutes to answer the first fan question. What's next? <laughs> we're we're, we're, we're going to cut it down now. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, so. I don't know how you top that. That's a, that's the thing. <laughs> you know, no, and that, that, that Bradshaw wreck happened over 20 years ago, and I've never said it publicly until now. So. All right. So. Um, Obviously, we we talked earlier tonight. Not you weren't on, but um, we talked a little bit about politics backstage and stuff like that. We talked about that earlier. Um, what are the some or what are some of the similarities between professional wrestling and NASCAR, such as the the politics backstage? And this is from um, Ethan Chambers. A lot of similarities, more than people would realize, because obviously, you know, wrestling is. Um, you know, predetermined, choreographed. I would never call it fake because it's certainly not fake. Hermie, um, Hermie, Hermie, I want to stop you right there. You know what? I respect what you just said more than any motherfucker on the planet. I swear to God, dude. I, I have, I know Jimmy's probably like, oh, I mean, RJ are probably like, oh my God, here he goes. I mean it so much, man. And I say it all the time. To call our sport fucking fake. It's not is, fake. It's a slap in the fucking face. I, I would call it, you know, choreographed with a predetermined outcome, whatever. But I have utmost respect for the boys and the girls that uh, participate and make a living in that. It's a hard way to make a living. It's a, I don't even know the right word. It's a very, very, very difficult way to make a living. And only a select few really really turn it into something life-changing i mean a, a handful you know and and um mm -hmm. these guys and girls give their give their bodies and their lives to you know to entertain people and all that uh but it is a uh it is a lot uh, of politics that goes on from on the on the wrestling side from the company owners to the to the bookers to the on the nascar side it's more to the nascar brass you know how they see things and how they market and push. And I'll give you, I'll give you one example of how 
how there are similarities. I mentioned my brother earlier, a five-time NASCAR most popular driver. Well, back in 2019, that's the at the end of 2019, that's when my brother and I both retired from the road, you might say. Me from doing full-time television, Elliot from his full-time racing career. And one of the reasons why is, as I said, my brother had won most popular driver five times in a row. But the entire 2019 season, all of a sudden, they were not using my brother in any of the promotions of NASCAR. They, they, they were promoting the Xfinity Series in 2019. The, the catch line was, names are made here. That was the catch line that you saw on TV all the time. Well, my brother was already made. They went and took all these young drivers that the fans didn't know, that the um, advertising executives didn't know. They were trying to promote the series as come watch this new generation of racers that, by the way, don't have any personality and can't put two sentences together in an interview. But then they wanted to use my brother behind the scenes to like, you know, do come to the appearances and to do all of this and all of that. Basically, in a nutshell, uh, and Kenny Wallace will tell you the exact same story with him. Once they were through with my brother, they took him out of all the media, all of the commercials, all of the promotions. But the fans still got a chance to speak. The fans still voted my brother most popular driver, not these young guys that were in all the commercials, you know, in all the promotions. The 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 NASCAR brass wanted to go younger, and the NASCAR fans were saying, no, we want a guy to be our most popular driver that we understand, that we know he's been around for 20 years, he connects with us, he's one of us. And so, you know, and I I, I – I don't follow as, as much closely now, but I've, I've questioned a lot of times through the years how, say, WWE and even, uh, you know, um, all the big promotions, WCW. My brother, I got a picture right here in my office with my brother wearing a WCW motorsports uniform. So WCW sponsored Elliot, you know, back in his early racing days and, Sting was on his car one time. Goldberg was on his car one time. But they pick and choose who they want to use sometimes, too. And sometimes it's not what the fans can and will catch on to or believe in or get behind. And so um, I wish, you know, WWE people all the time say they let the fans decide. But a lot of times they don't let the fans decide. A lot of it is personal with who has the, the best relationship, say, with Triple H or whoever the head person is at the time. But I'll tell you one thing that's very, very similar between professional wrestling and NASCAR racing. For every one guy or girl that makes it, there's a thousand that could have done just as good or better had they been given the right opportunities at the right time with the right push, with the right situation, all that. And so um, same way with golf. I mean, you can go down the list. I know so many 
golfers that are just great that never got the shot. So many Saturday night short track racers that are way better than I ever was or my brother or anybody else just never got the shot. And that's one thing I enjoyed about our show, our shows back in the day, you know, back in 2000 and 2001, two, three, you know, Sanjay Dutt, Elix Skipper, all these guys, I mean, for 200 bucks, 300 bucks, I mean, would kill themselves to put on a show for some of these people. I don't want to call any names. Then you see the main event guys coming in that thought they were it, you know, making three or four times the money and going through the motions, yet, you know, probably got some opportunities early on when these other guys didn't. Uh, it's always been a little bit frustrating, I'm sure it has been for the boys and girls that really worked hard and probably deserve more opportunities than they got. So Herbie, here's what I want to do. Um, I uh, want you to take this opportunity to take and put out all your social media, put out all your things that you do and, and basically put your fucking self over Hermie. Come on. You're good. <laughs> now I'm look, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, and what I'll say to all the wrestling fans out there is, is um, it's a, it's a wonderful industry. Um, a really great group of people involved in it, but you know, it's not always what it's cracked up to be and what people see on TV and the radio and all that. We, we all on this podcast know our friends with some of the, you know, some of the, horror stories and all that. And so I have a, a, utmost respect for all of you and people that, um, that participate in and love, uh, wrestling. But Brian, these days, um, you know, I'm retired from, uh, from, from traveling, uh, retired from racing, retired from TV. I can't fully get racing out of my blood though. I do own a open wheel modified team with Senator Bill Stanley. Um, we race in the NASCAR wheeling modified tour and the Smart Modified Tour, and some of my old buddies, Bobby Labonte and Ryan Newman, are my two drivers uh, that drive my cars for me. I've known those what? guys for 25-plus years. Whoa, hurry, hurry, hurry. What? You said Ryan Newman and who? Bobby Labonte. Bobby Labonte. Jesus Christ. Bobby Labonte is NASCAR Hall of Famer, and no. Ryan no. Newman will be one day. Uh, but but uh, we so I still got the racing in my blood. Also, right here, back in my shop, right here behind me, we mentioned me starting in go-karts when I was eight years old. I have a chassis, a go-kart chassis manufacturing business called Premier Racing Chassis, and I do that simply to build carts and parts and equipment uh, to help young kids get started in karting. And we build the carts, we set them up, we go to the track, we help them, we you know try to uh, get people on the right on the right, on the right track, so to speak, uh, those that want to race. So we build go-karts right here in my shop back here. And, um, every day I've got a family stopping in here from like, a perfect example. Last, last Friday night after Thanksgiving, I went to, um, Sellers, South Carolina to a big Thanksgiving race. And we had a family that came from Canada, drove from Canada all the way to Emporia, Virginia, Got their cart set up, little nine-year-old kid, just getting started in racing. Bought the cart. We set it up, put it in the trailer. They went to South Carolina and won the biggest race of the kid's life. 
So I get a lot of satisfaction out of that these days, you know, helping kids that, that have that dream um, and give them that opportunity. And then outside of that, uh, Brian, you know, I'm involved with a lot of things. I give my wife all the credit. We've got four or five restaurants, um, you know, Faux Show, Victory Lane. We've got an IHOP restaurant. We've got two Five Guys Burgers and Fries. Um, me and my wife together have about 300 employees. Uh, that we do together with me and my wife and my family. And then uh, my sister and I now own Saddler Brothers Oil Company that was our family business. And we operate about 30 convenience stores and we deliver fuel and gas to farmers and loggers and things of that nature. And uh, that in itself is a full-time job. But I'm fortunate. I'm blessed. I've got a lot to do. Uh, we're busy. Uh, things are good. Uh, the economy is a struggle and it's going to really be another struggle in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, people don't really understand how economies, when they cycle, it takes 12, 18 months for the normal everyday working people to really feel the pinch. And so we've got some difficult times coming up, you know, for, for your, uh, for your middle to low income people. And that, that hurts my heart a little bit, but, um, but I got a lot going on, man. I'm lucky. I've got three beautiful daughters and, uh, as of about three weeks ago, I got my first grandbaby. So life is good, but it's a lot, it sure is a lot going on. Congratulations. And, and we understand how busy you are. And we fully appreciate you taking this much time out to talk to us tonight because it, it, it truly has been a blast listening to the stories and listening to, you know, you telling us about your career and just been a lot of fun. Let's put I, it I appreciate the opportunity and uh, we'll do it another time. There's a, me and Brian didn't even get into the weeds on the stories on the road. With the <laughs> that's, that's a whole nother show. Uh, that's, that's on the kayfabe version of the show. Yeah. 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 But no. uh, Brian tell Earl, I said, hello. And I hope to catch up with you guys soon. And Jimmy, RJ, everybody, good luck with your podcast and uh, love to be on any time. Just let me know. All right, Hermie. Well, look, it sounds like all you just said is uh, sounds like you're living the good retirement life. Um yeah. <laughs> hey, I have so much respect for my brother, but the one thing that my brother did that I was not able to do that was actually win enough races and money to actually retire. So I got to still work and I still work, but I'm able to do it. And I enjoy it, love it, and um, trying to pass that along to my kids. But uh, I have a lot of fond memories from the wrestling business. And Shep Moss keeps trying to talk me into maybe one more loop. So I say no, but I, I know better than to say never. Hmm. Hermie, 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 don't you get me excited. Shep's working on me. He he really is working on me. He says, Hermie, we got to have, we got to put the band back together for just another two or three week loop worth of shows. We got to get tiny. Remember the bell keeper? Oh, 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 of course, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> all right. Well, look. Here's the deal. If you ever decide that, you know that I'm retired from wrestling. Uh, if you don't know, now you know. I'm retired from wrestling. I, 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 I quit. Not quit, but I retired. Like last, what was, RJ, was it Slam anniversary? Last year or a year after that? I don't know. Two years ago. Okay. Shit. See, I thought it was last year. Um. <laughs> Anyway, but I, I need you to come back and referee a match between Earl and Shep Moss. That's gotta happen. 
They tried <laughs> to start it without me knowing about it at the Siegel Center. I thought we had a nice show put together. I turn around, people are leaving the building. I look, and Earl and Shep are locked up in the middle of the ring. My uh, referee and my announcer are thinking they're drawing heat, and people are breaking the turnstiles trying to get out of the Siegel Center. <laughs> like, what are y'all doing? They said, we thought we had a uh, Shep, I don't pay you to think, son. Just talk. Yeah. They, 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 they earned a, they, they, they ran their own angle. <laughs> they, I, we, I mean, I, I cannot tell you how much fun those days were, but uh, maybe, her, maybe, her, her, maybe. I, I say this before I leave, I, and and I'll, obviously I'll text you and talk to you. But anyway, dude, you're a good dude, man. You're a good dude, and you, your your heart, is, your heart is um, infectious, man. I mean, it's just it's fucking awesome. And um, we got to get together more often, though, for sure. Absolutely. And by the way, um, just throwing this out there, uh, I'm not saying I can, but I'm going to try. But I'm kind of open tomorrow. You're going to be in this area tomorrow. I'm going to be over at Brock's. I know where Brock's is at. Going to Brock's. Have dinner with some uh, hmm. old racing. But it is a shame we live 75 miles apart, and I see you once every five years. we got to do better than that. <laughs> we do. We do. We do. Yeah. We do. I'm sorry, man. No, ain't your fault. We, it, life happens, man. Everybody's look. I just said my whole race team that I won rookie of the year with in '93. I mean, I hadn't seen Bobby King, my crew chief, probably in ten years. I'm going to see him tomorrow. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, look, we're so happy to have you on, man. Hermie, thank you. And look, so if y'all decide not to air this, I understand. Why would we hear this? Why we, oh, by the way, no, no, no. Last thing before we leave. Last thing before we leave. Um. I have to have this was highlighted on my sheet. Hermie, please tell everybody how you pack and we roll. How's your suitcase? How I pack? Your suitcase. Short. My suitcase is a clothes basket. <laughs> I don't care if I'm going to a UWF show in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or Wilson, North Carolina, or if I'm going to stay in the Waldorf Astoria in New York City. Or the Weston and Beverly Hills, because y'all got it all wrong. A clothes basket, if you pack your clothes and put them in a clothes basket, you take them to the room, you take the clothes out and put them in the drawers, then it becomes a dirty clothes basket. Same basket. What the hell's wrong with y'all? Oh, my God. And that's how you close a show, Hermie? Thank you for joining the show, buddy. I love you. I will tell my dad. I will tell him I said hello. I can't tell my uncle anymore, but anyway, he he knows he's hearing it. By the way, I'm so mm -hmm. glad I got I went to see Dave about a month before he passed. I didn't know he was uh that bad off, but I went by there to see him at the house and and uh so thankful that I a little light went off of my head and said, You need to go see Dave. And I went to see Dave and got to talk to him for 30, 45 minutes, and uh, as I said, way back at the beginning of the show, um, Dave Hebner was a good man, treated a lot of people the right way, and helped a lot of people make their dreams come true in the wrestling business and deserves to be in the WWE Hall of Fame. I know me saying so won't help, but um, he's touched as many people in that industry is just about anybody that I know and he deserves better than that. So hopefully one day he'll get it. 
Well, I'll just tell you this. Uh, we didn't do a reference review this week because this kind of subject right here makes me want to go to fuck off, but I'm going to chill. As should. Well, Talk I'm going to... politics. I look, I know we're trying to get off the air. Talk about politics. People are so petty. The Hall of Fame should be about what people accomplished in the industry and the lives they touched. I mean, how many times have we heard WWE say about the experience and you're, in, you're into putting smiles on people's faces? Mm-hmm. You think Dave and Earl Hebner ever put smiles on people's faces? Come on, man. Yeah, but but we'll we'll put Arnold Schwarzenegger in the motherfucker. It's it's mm-hmm. just so, and they both did some of the most historic work in the ring that anybody's ever done. There'll never be anything else mm-hmm. like it. And, and and look, I have a lot of friends in the WWE Hall of Fame, and I'm proud of them all. But when you got a situation like this, it significantly lowers my respect for the people that make those decisions and for the, um, and for the entity itself, because you got to figure out what the hell the hall of fame is, you know, either it is or it isn't, whatever. I agree. I agree. The hall of fame, actually, to be honest with you, Hermie, now we're on this and then I'll get you out of here. I'm sorry, but it's fake. It's a fake fucking thing. I just, it would be so easy you know, look, we all in life, I don't care what industry you're in, you have ups and downs, ins and outs, all that. But I'm going to say this and I'm going to quit. For Dave Hebner, you know, and your dad's not getting any younger either. And maybe your dad wouldn't even go now if they ask. I don't know. But for Dave Hebner to give his entire life to an industry and his heart to a company for all those years and for them, for them to be so petty to not do something for him before he passed away. And I know they knew because if they didn't know before I went, I sent pictures of me and Dave to all the higher ups at WWE. As soon as I walked out the door at his house for them to not do anything um, was like I said, nobody is going to pay attention to me, but if I'd had anything to do with it, a lot of people had an opportunity to, Make it not right, but make it better. And yes. they did. So shame on them. Yep, I agree. It is what it is. And guess what? Fuck them. But anyway. There you go. Thank you so much, buddy. I love you, man. I really do. And, Appreciate uh, y'all. Thank you. Love you, too. And we'll talk soon. Call me anytime. I'll see you at right. tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably so. I like some barbecue. Y'all be good. Appreciate y'all. Take care. Man, if you wanted a a deep dive into the wrestling business and into the business in general, you absolutely love that episode with Hermie Sadler. So thrilled that he was able to make time for us tonight. Uh, But something that uh, you should be making time for are two of our uh, teammates here on Reffing It Up, J.D. Hoop, who does... Man, amazing graphics each and every week for us. He's doing gear now. He's got, I have an inside that to look out for the Royal Rumble. As you will see some of his and DJ Rod's uh, um, gear that they designed on the Royal Rumble. Just a heads up for that. So his information's in the show notes. Uh, AJ McKay, absolutely phenomenal guy. He's just hitting out of the park with everything and he's doing as well. 
his show notes are there. Uh, Jimmy, you keep hitting it uh, out of the park each and every day with your ref and rants, man. I, uh, like I said, I keep saying it every week and it's, you know, it, it's becoming a ritual for me to uh, wait till it comes up. Okay. Stop what I'm doing. Boom. Put it on. But how can people watch that? Just like I do every day. Well, I appreciate that very much, RJ. Yeah. You know, every, uh, every week from Monday to, to Friday, it's, it's a minute long video. Just me. Again, not trying to tear down the wrestling business, finding critiques. It's in a, a lot of it is the little things that we talk about that I find that make me go, hmm, why? And question why. And it's to tighten screws, basically, that I believe need tightening. But I try to do it in a fun way as way. But every once in a while, you know, something does set me off. Let's put it that way. And also, obviously, you can find me here every week uh, on the Reffing It Up deal with you guys, which I love doing. And on Wrestling Inc. Uh, with uh, Justin Labar uh, on uh, Monday nights after Raw and on Wednesday nights after AEW Dynamite, where we do our critiques and our reviews and uh, what we like and what we didn't on the shows. And Brian, okay. you know, we uh, before when you're putting the dog out, uh, Hermie was actually saying that uh, Jimmy should start going and doing a lot of the uh, uh, critiquing we'll say for a better use of term uh of the uh, referees that you do on your social media so if guys aren't following you and guys and gals aren't following you well they should but how are they getting how can they do that well first of all i want to say this that was an absolute awesome episode i thought mm-hmm, it was yeah. awesome um i really enjoyed Hermie. Hermie's a genuine guy and if you didn't get that out of that then you're okay i don't want to curse but <laughs> You're 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 not thinking straight. Um, such a good dude. Um, I have a lot of history with him, and he has a lot of history with my family. And what a great guy! And to say what I'm saying about Jimmy, whatever Jimmy says about refereeing, as far as the the, the, the rants and stuff, um, they're 100 completely true, and I agree with 99.9 percent of them. So, Jimmy, whatever you say, dude, I am all aboard if i'm not aboard i'll let you know there's a one percent i may let you know but it ain't it ain't off the bud but anyway um baby hebner at baby hebner on twitter and instagram that's the way you reach me other than that you cannot reach me thank you <laughs> uh so guys stay tuned to our social medias for reffing it up at reffing it up on on instagram and twitter uh to check out who we're gonna have on next week uh we'll should have an announcement in the next couple days um nope 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 pause, pause. i got a little 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 insight breaking news well 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 we might be talking uh not might we are gonna bring in just got to work out the logistics. Uh, we're going to bring in the Pope, the Daddy Pope. We're going to bring in the Pope, who was, um, obviously, if you don't know, he was in WWE, he's in TNA, and now he's in NWA. Um, the Pope will be here next week. There you go. So, a.k.a. D'Angelo uh, De Niro, when he was in, or Elijah Burke, when he was in WWE, he's D'Angelo De Niro, and TNA, I believe. So throw it in the Google machine. Either way. Elijah There you go. We'll do we'll go with that. But guys, thank you so much for joining us this week. For Mr. Jimmy Carderis and Mr. Brian Heather, I am RJ. We'll see you here next week on Reffing It Up. One, two, three. <laughs>